Chapter 9, California Desert Trails by Joseph Smeaton Chase. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9, A Desert Ride, Coachella Valley to Pinion Well. A few miles to the south of Indio, there is a rocky outpost of the mountain wall known, of course incorrectly, as the Coral Reef. A ride over to view it at close range proved well worthwhile. At intervals I came upon farms with fields of alfalfa, acres of grapes or melons, and rows of thrifty young dates. Between farm and farm lay stretches of untouched desert more dreary than ever by contrast with the cultivated areas. In the distance pillars of dust, the genie of the whirlwind, moved in ghostly dance across the view, like dervishes ceaselessly whirling. The haze of summer had, by now, settled on the desert, and today it almost obscured the mountains. San Jacinto's top was marked by scratches of white where the last of the snow lay in shaded clefts and canyons, while San Gorgonio's slightly higher crest showed in broader streaks and splashes, both seeming to hang without support in the pale cerulean sky. The hot, fitful breeze, the dreamy mountains, and those gliding, melancholy dust wraiths threw us both into a drowse, broken unpleasantly when Kawea stepped on a ground rat's or squirrel's burrow, with a resulting jerk and snort, or when, passing a mesquite, clouds of locusts came charging at us with goblin eyes and banshee screech, squirting their vile artillery. Shells covered the ground, mostly tiny spirals smaller than rice grains, with a few three-inch clam-shaped ones that gave an iridescent coloring to the surface. Pottery fragments were plentiful, plying the fancy with visions of strange aboriginal things. An occasional litter of cans or bottles raised the reflection that future ages, judging us by our debris, will conclude that we were an ugly, uncouth lot, much inferior to the race we displaced. On a near approach, the mountains on this southern border of the valley showed a more than usually forbidding aspect. Rising abruptly from the sand level, their forms are almost grotesque, with suggestions of plesiosaurus and pterodactyl in their vast, ridgy backbones. Yet it is these brick-like shapes that, at a distance and with sunrise or sunset coloring, take on a look that can only be called heavenly. Perhaps it is one point of the analogy between nature and the mind of man that, in retrospect, life, even if it has been unlovely like these crude rock masses, may gain a quality of beauty from that which enfolds all, the universal goodness that is God. The reef itself is an isolated hill, close to the main rise of the mountain, noticeable for the strongly marked beach line which is seen in a broad band of dark brown that reaches ten or twelve feet above the level of the soil. Above this line the rock is lighter, the ordinary granite weathered to red and ochre. The so-called coral is what geologists call travertine, really calcium carbonate, which in a sort of sponge-like formation encrusts the rock that was once submerged. Little shells are embedded in the substance, or remain as they lodged in the interstices when washed there by some wave of the vanished sea. The hill is cliff-like in steepness and almost bare of vegetation. A bisnaga or two lean out, as if curious to see the rare visitor, 
and a few thin creosotes wave drearily in the wind. At the rear of the reef, the ground rises to a bench of gravelly soil in which one notes at once a different set of plants, the smoke tree, palo verde, several sorts of cactus, bright green creosote, and the odd sandpaper plant. There is always this well-marked difference between the vegetable life of the tracts above and below sea level, the difference being based, of course, upon the distinct characters of the soils. Above the old sea line is sand, gravel, and rock, with a varied range of desert growths. Below is a fine silt, whitened with shells and with little vegetation beyond dull clumps of atriplex and sueda. This lower belt is much the drearier region, yet it is this self-same silt which, were not rendered sterile by alkalinity, shows such amazing fertility under cultivation. It is Lower Egypt all over again, with the Colorado taking the place of the Nile. A little distance to the west, I noticed a small cove with a beach of pure white sand. It was strange to think what manner of children once played about it, and how many centuries had silently passed since their voices ceased with that of the sea. Now the hour is close at hand when children will again make its crannies ring. Will they also have their day and cease to be? And, after a lapse of other centuries, will some other fashion of mankind again come, again to vanish into silence? Above all, shall we know and watch the recurring drama? In the desert one is prone to such aimless dreams. The solitude, the vast unbroken levels, the wandering idle wind perpetually turn one's thoughts inward, yet seem to lead them out in vaguest reverie. If the reader finds too much of such matter in these pages, I can only say that the fault is inherent in the subject, as humanity has ever found. It was always to the desert, if possible, that the hermit fled when he meant to waste his time. The long ridge of mountains that bound this arm of the desert on the north and east and the question of what might lie beyond them had been on my mind for a long time. That locality could best be reached from the Indio region, so this was my opportunity. All I knew of it was that a road, of a sort, ran that way into the old mining districts of Twenty-Nine Palms and Virginia Dale, and that water was scarce and forage scarcer. By luck, I heard of a freighter who made periodical trips over part of the distance, hauling supplies from Coachella to a mine in these mountains. I hunted him up and arranged to accompany him as far as our road was the same, buying fodder for Coahuila from the supply he carried with him for his own horses. At four o'clock of the morning of the last day of June, I left my mesquite bivouac. A camp of Mexican onion pickers was already astir as I passed. Fire was twinkling under coffee pot, and men, women, boys, girls, and dogs, to the total of a score, were loafing and yawning with that air of entire leisure which is a mark of their race, and which I, for one, find rather enviable. I like to come on these camps, especially at evening. There is in them a touch of the patriarchal, padre and blue jumper beneath some rustling cottonwood, rolling and smoking eternal cigarettes. Juanitos and Conchitas in troops clambering over him like caterpillars or tumbling in congenial dust. 
madre an attractive figure in reboso or with splendid unbound tresses preparing frijoles or chili con carne or more likely yankee canned beef and alberto picking out the latest ditty on his mandolin wherewith to capture the heart of encarnacion at the neighboring camp after supper rarely does one hear any word of contention for family affection runs strong in the blood of our lightly esteemed neighbors from over the line at the crossroad i halted to wait for my teamster and enjoy a sunrise the morning was half cloudy and the sun threw shifting lights on the mountains to south and west bringing into view canyons and abysses that i had never known were there these bare walls have a trick of concealing important features in a way that is impossible with wooded or brush-covered mountains some momentary relation of sun and cloud may any day give you a topographical surprise even after years of acquaintance as if some breakfast time you should learn from your paper that the agreeable elderly gentleman next door was an experienced cracksman long wanted by inspector bucket my friend's caravan signalled by distant clouds of dust at length came creeping along a huge wagon with seven-inch tires loaded with a ton or two of mixed merchandise ranging from soda pop to bob milligan's new suit and a case or two of dynamite in the jockey box was the week's mail for a score or so of men at the mine and what was of most concern to coia on the tailboard were piled sacks of barley and bales of hay crossing the railway we turned northward toward an opening in the so-called mud hills which make a feature equally fascinating and repellent in this part of the desert geography in dreariness they surpass even the great sand dunes which now lay far to the westward their ashy gray is the most hopeless of hues and their few scraps of brush are almost ghastly the fascination lies in the strangeness of the shapes into which the material has been wrought the cutting and carving scoring and scraping twisting and twirling gouging and grinding that has gone on here for ages has given an almost unreal look to the region a romancer of the type of jules verne wishing to depict conditions on the moon or on this planet when its turn comes can here find material to his purpose local color bleached to the appropriate monochrome there was not much opportunity for conversation to ride alongside the wagon was to be enfolded in the dust from sixteen scuffling hoofs for at our slow gait it was much as if we stood still while the horses milled up dust for our benefit moreover these teamsters of the desert roads are of a silent breed and emmons was true to the type yet i knew he was glad of my company and i have often proved that a heart kindly to man and beast may beat beneath a taciturn waistcoat occasionally he would call to a shirking horse always a single word and with an odd way of dropping the leading consonant thus eat ill azy and ooze stood for pete bill daisy and suze and the slack trace chain never failed to straighten when these monosyllabic shots went off the creeping pace and the unknown spacious desolation into which we were imperceptibly moving gave me the feeling of starting on some lifelong enterprise a faint breeze came now and then from the west but it was dry and parching and brought no refreshment 
The sky was overcast with a haze which diffused the sunlight to a blinding whiteness that was more trying than the direct rays, and that seemed to intensify the heat by giving it power to attack equally on all sides at once. There was something of the same deadly quality in the air that I felt at two bunch palms, though not to the same degree. We resorted often to our canteens, while the horses were treated to frequent rests, though short ones. On this kind of day, one realizes easily enough how imperative is the need for water to the desert traveler. One feels that, without drinking constantly, one would shrivel, and perceives with horror the fearful nature of such an end as death from thirst. The track, it could on no terms be called a road, after passing through an opening in the mud hills at a point where curious caverns, pinnacles, and arches occur, turned westerly into a long valley that divides these foothills from the main mountain wall. Silt was exchanged for sand and gravel, and the vegetation changed automatically with it. Creosote, burrowweed, and lipia made scanty show, with tufts of the interesting white holly, which at this season takes on pale tints of seashell pink and lavender, almost iridescent. The going became slower than ever. I relieved Kawia by walking, but there was no amelioration for the straining team that now could hardly keep way on their huge load, though they were splendid animals and in the pink of condition. Looking at my watch, I was astonished to find it was only seven o'clock, I should have said we had been five hours on the road. Little as there was of vegetation, there was still less of animal life. Birds, there were almost none, for the distance to water ruled them out. Jackrabbit tracks came now and then, for Jack is almost a total abstainer. Lizards there were, for they are everywhere, and I noticed plentiful tracks of the dreaded sidewinder, Croatilus cerastes. This is a small, asp-like species of the ordinary rattlesnake, found most often in the sandy or silty desert, whereas the larger rattler likes rocky country in the neighborhood of water. Two little protuberances over the eyes, like sprouting horns, give the sidewinder an extra devilish air, and his small size makes him the more dangerous because less easily seen and heard. His track, however, is unmistakable, owing to his peculiar mode of travel, which seems to be by looping himself along in spiral reaches, so that his trail is not a continuous line, but a series of short diagonal strokes about nine inches apart. For some reason, he enjoys wheel ruts, and always takes advantage of them. But as he moves mainly by night, he is not often seen by the traveler on the road. It is a strange fact, of which I have been assured by more than one person who has put it to the proof, that a sidewinder kept exposed to direct summer sun will not live longer than a few minutes. Footnote. I have recently had an opportunity to test this on a sidewinder that I brought into camp for photographic purposes. It was a full-grown specimen, and was not in the least injured in process of capturing. I turned it into an enclosure of boxes in the open sunshine. It was as vicious and full of life as ever at first, but after three or four minutes became languid, then ceased to move. Soon the head drew back and the mouth opened, as in the attitude of striking. In ten minutes it was dead. 
The month was September, and the temperature at the time 106 degrees in the shade. With a midsummer temperature 10 or 15 degrees higher, no doubt the time would have been much shorter, perhaps two or three minutes only, as reported to me by another experimenter. It is certainly remarkable that a desert creature should be so constituted. End of footnote. The explanation must be that the thin skin gives no protection to the cold reptilian blood. Certain it is that the sidewinder is rarely seen in the open by day, but is almost always found coiled in the shade, usually about the roots of brush. It would be a praiseworthy act of Saul, one for which I could forgive him much, if he would one day turn on for a short time such a torrid blast as would cook the whole sidewinder tribe where they lie snoothing in fancied security. Hour after hour went by in a sort of trance of heat while we still toiled up that furnace-like valley. The wagon ground its ponderous way through the sand or slid screeching over boulders. At half-past nine we reached the point where my teamster was to water his horses. Here he kept several large iron drums of water, which he refilled when necessary at the mine. He unscrewed the plugs with a spanner, and then bucket after bucket was given the eager animals, Kawea participating. Next we fed them, and then, while we ate our own lunch, Emmons casually mentioned that this was Dead Man's Point. Why so called? Oh, a Mexican was found dead over there, year before last. At least part of him was found. Not much, on account of coyotes. He'd come out afoot from the mines, the lost horse, I think it was, got thirsty and wandered around some, and then give out. Name was Lopez. No, though that was another feller. Well, anyway, some fellers found him up that gully a little ways, saw his tracks going round and round crazy-like, and trailed him. Reckon there ought to be some bits of his clothes up there yet, if you've a mind to look. Yes, it's dry-like around here. As we screwed up the drums, I had a vision of a raving wretch, myself, tearing at the immovable plug with bleeding fingers, striking at it with swollen, lacerated feet, hearing the water gurgle within, in vain, in vain. Heavens! I felt faint at the thought, and was glad to mount and leave Dead Man's Point to the coyotes and the murderous sun. Here we turned up a narrower canyon, leading directly into the mountains. The grade became steeper, and the vegetation more varied. Canyon after canyon debouched into ours, dozens of them, all dry, baking, shivering with heat. There is no need to describe the country in detail. It was all alike. We ground our way on and up. The sun, now clearer, reflected upon us from the rocky walls. My canteen, replenished after lunch, soon grew too hot to be put to the lips with comfort, while the water itself was at a temperature of over a hundred degrees, I am sure, and every drink threw me into immediate perspiration. At three o'clock we came to the next watering place and halted for the day. We had made just twenty miles in ten hours of travel. A well is maintained here, after a fashion by the county authorities. There was the usual camp litter, also a rough bed and a stove, Emmons's property, for this was one of his regular stopping places. A little way back he had inquired whether I liked bees or minded being stung. 
also asking Kawea's sentiments on the same point. On approaching the well, I caught the bearing of his question. The place was literally alive with bees. The air was like a swarm in flight, and the well itself resounded with the buzzing of thousands down there in the dark. However, water must be got for the horses, though we had enough for ourselves in the canteens, which was fortunate, for bucket after bucket came up covered with dead bees, and the liquid had a faded smell from the myriads of decaying insects. So we hauled and skimmed and ladled till the animals had got their fill. The canyon thereabouts must be well sprinkled with bee caves, and someone who enjoys that sort of thing might find exciting bee hunting with honey by the barrel. Then Emmons stripped to the waist and went to work with curry comb and brush at his horses while they fed. No doubt they earned the care he lavished on them, but it is not every faithful animal's master that will take his turn and sweat for them as they have sweated for him. When supper time came, he would not hear of my drawing on my saddlebag stores. Say, I'll have to call you down, he said genially. If you'd carried your blankets forty years like I have, you'd know better than that. How many eggs do you eat? That's what I want to know. Will four do you? That's my figure. And when next day it came to settling our accounts, he was scornful at the idea of my paying for what I had eaten of his supplies. It's all right about the hay and grain. They cost money, he argued. But eggs and such truck? Oh, shucks. And shucks it had to be at risk of giving offense. Profane my friendly freighter was, alas, at strenuous moments, but it was not profanity of the usual gross type and seemed almost automatic. Experience makes me wonder, indeed, if there has ever been a really successful Western teamster who was free from this vice. Waking about midnight, I noticed Emmons get up, light a lantern, and again water his animals, taking them one by one the hundred yards down to the well and back, after which he threw them down more hay. Seeing this, I could do no less for Kawea, though I claim no credit for it. I found it easy to excuse Emmons for an occasional outbreak of cuss words next day, when I remembered how he not only regarded the life of his beast, as a righteous man will do, but looked to its comfort as well, and at no small sacrifice of his own. Being up, and the night warm and still, it seemed a good time for a smoke, so we took a pipe apiece, and then a pull at the canteen, and so to sleep again till four o'clock and dawn. By half-past five we were again moving up the canyon. It became constantly narrower, steeper, and rougher, the wagon bumping and lurching along in a dogged kind of way, serenely confident in the soundness of hickory and wrought iron. Our surroundings became more interesting now that we were well into the mountains. There was no outlook, for we were shut in on both sides by walls that rose steeply for hundreds of feet, and the canyon was ever twisting. But bushes of fair size began to appear, and bird life, too, came in. It is the open wastes where nothing is and nothing is to be expected that wear one's spirits down. One hears a good deal on the desert about arsenic water. Prospectors especially are full of tales of arsenic springs where death snatches the traveler unaware. I believe competent authorities deny that arsenic in dangerous quantity exists in any of the desert water, 
and account for the fact that men have died from drinking the water of certain springs by the theory that the men in question arriving at the suspected springs suffering from thirst and perhaps weak from hunger as well drank too freely and succumbed to the excess which likely enough was rendered more dangerous by the unwholesome substances often found in the water of these desert springs it is a common experience to find one's expected water supply contaminated with dead coyotes foxes birds or snakes and water holes that are seldom visited and therefore seldom cleaned out may become poisonous even from decaying vegetable matter i have not the means of giving a personal opinion but one knows the hold that poison legends like those of lost mines and buried treasure take on popular imagination and prospectors as a class are notoriously open to any touch of mystery or superstition i found my companion infected on this subject on leaving our last camp i had filled my canteens using water that had been boiled to prevent ill effects from dead bees emmons had no particular objection to decaying bees but warned me gravely that there was arsenic in the water he had found it poisonous himself he had said but when i asked how he knew that it was arsenic that had upset him he replied that everyone knew there were arsenic springs on the desert and he figured that this must be one of them however i reckoned that if a horse could take several gallons at a draught without any bad effect i ought to be good for a mouthful now and then so i drank at first carefully then freely and noticed only that the supposed arsenic left lips and throat gummy so there was an inclination to drink almost constantly the canyon became a gorge with yet higher walls the strata split and upreared at all manner of painful angles wild-looking shrubs leaned out overhead and stared down at us with a startled air strangest of these were the so-called joshua trees yucca brevifolia that now began to appear nothing in the vegetable world is more unprepossessing than this scarecrow all knees and elbows with handfuls and mouthfuls of daggers for leaves the name is said to have been given to plant by early mormon emigrants to california in reference to its heralding their approach to the promised land there seems to be no great compliment involved in having this spiteful-looking object for a namesake next to appear was the ever-interesting juniper i like our california hero fray junipero serra all the better for his choice of a monastic name though it came second-hand from that one of the saint francis's band whom the saint cried admiringly oh that i had a forest of such junipers there is some very wholesome quality about this plant even in its stunted desert form and pliny may be more reliable than in some other items of natural history when he declares that serpents shun this tree and men may therefore safely sleep in its shade for fuel qualities anyhow it has no equal and i always hail the chance of a juniper campfire the pinion also soon came in another of my favorites gnarly but cheerful a sort of puck of the pines then appeared small oaks and willows links with scenes and lands far different from this all these old friends looked wonderfully kindly and when i halted and listened to the breeze humming in the pinions it cost me a pang to think that i was in for months 
possibly years of life in a treeless land, and I wondered how I, whose ancestor must have been a dryad, should ever tolerate it. At a point where a side canyon ran off to the west, I noticed a weather-beaten signboard showing that the Dewey Mine lay up there. This mine, it seems, was a notorious case of salting, that is, baiting a worthless prospect with pieces of rich ore. A fraud that nearly came off, but not quite. Even costly machinery was installed in the effort to carry the bluff through. Emmons could not recall the fate of the promoters of the swindle, but we agreed in hoping that the darn skunks were at that moment unpleasantly engaged with a pile of oakum. We were now close to the summit of the ridge, but the steepest rise remained to be climbed. Emmons rested his team while he looked carefully over the running gear of the wagon. Then he attached brake logs to the rear wheels. When all was ready, he climbed to his perch, gathered the lines, cast a shrewd eye over the road that rose at a sharp angle ahead, and remarked in a casual tone, Now, gals, at the same moment throwing off the brake. The well-drilled team responded. The trace chains grated, the wheels screeched against the boulders, and the huge wagon crawled up the grade for twenty yards. The brake came on with a thump, the horses stopped in their tracks, and the wagon settled back against the blocks. Two minutes rest, then another twenty yards, and so on for eight or ten spells. We reached the top and crossed the pass at 4,600 feet. A fine outlook opened from the crest. Far to the west lay my brace of giants, San Jacinto and San Gorgonio, a sort of Gog and Magog. Behind and to the east was a jumble of brown ranges with pale slips of desert showing here and there between them. To the north I looked out over the Mojave Desert, the twin sister of the Colorado. From this point a wilderness of mountains, arid, aerial, almost phantasmal, Beautiful, too, they were in their elemental solitude, their delicacy of tone, and most so in their air of mystery, their magnetic drawing on the imagination. Come, they seemed to say, we are waiting for you. We have waited since eternity began. You long to know us. You cannot guess what wealth we hide. Come and take it if you dare. We dare you. Yes, and if you yield and go, you may indeed learn their secret, perhaps a secret of gold such as never yet dazzled man's eye and betrayed his soul. But remember, you may never return to this other world, the world of men, trees, brooks, all the companionable sights and sounds of homes and towns of common people. A mile down the grade brought us to Pinion Well. Here is an abandoned, worked-out mine with old buildings and a scattering of other effects, tools, pipelines, and so forth. The old well with rusty pump is still in order, and now again we tasted good water. And how good good water is, perhaps, is only known to men who travel the desert. We made a hasty meal, for Emmon still had a few miles to cover. My road left his not far from this point, so I decided to stay here for a day, enjoying the mountain air, pure, cool water, and picturesque surroundings. Resting Kauia also, who was accommodated with a few feeds of hay from Emmons's store. Lunch over, we bade one another goodbye and good luck, 
and I watched the wagon crawl away down the canyon toward the lonely camp somewhere in that gray wilderness, where a score of men, with never a woman, were dragging the deadly gold out of the grasp of the Sphinx. End of chapter 9